Hello, you're listening to Coffee Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 43rd episode. Today, we will talk about special purpose acquisition companies known in the investment world as SPACs. These structures have taken the limelight in the world of fundraising in the past year, with over $81 billion in issuances in 2020 in the U.S. markets. SPACs, in fact, made up of nearly half of the IPO markets in the U.S. last year, so surely we can't let such a major driver of capital market activity go unaddressed. So today, we will reach out to an industry expert, Alok Obroy. Alok has over three decades of experience with asset management, including senior roles at Goldman Sachs and ACPI. Alok Obroy, welcome to Kobe Time. Thank you. I'd like to start with the ABC of SPAC. Just walk us through in baby steps on what SPACs are and how they became such a big deal in recent years. Excellent. Well, uh, quite simply, it's a publicly listed vehicle where people buy shares and uh, they put the money in trust. And the, the uh, executives of that SPAC are then entrusted with the uh, challenge of finding a business opportunity. And when they do that, they come back with that potential merger, present what they found to the shareholders of the SPAC. And the SPAC shareholders have two or three decisions to make. Firstly, do they recommend that this deal go through? That's their first question. And the second, more important question is whether or not they want to participate. So here are the two answers. One, if a majority say yes, the deal will go through. And then second question, do they want to participate? If they answer yes, they will then participate based on the deal that they've seen. And if they say no, they get the money back that they initially put in, plus any interest that was kept in trust. So it's a very good free option for the shareholders to have a chance of uh, seeing whether or not they want to do a deal or participate in a deal that they uh, that this company will present. So not only do you have an experienced investor who will target a company and then, as you said, merge it. So the SPAC itself is a company, and then you target a company and you merge the two together, and all of a sudden that second company becomes one that is traded in the yes. market. Yes. So in a way, if you look at it, what has been the purpose of the SPAC? The, uh, the purpose of the SPAC was really to allow several private companies to come to the market perhaps sooner than they would have otherwise have access to. Right. Because they were much more dependent on an IPO process and the market was either open or not open and there was a whole process through the SEC, etc. And there's another very, very important point. Uh, there's a slight difference in how um, the regulations work, especially in the United States, on uh, uh, forward-looking earnings. So if you look at a situation of a company going public, uh, because of the underwriters and the current regulations around it, companies are not really giving forward-looking guidance, which is a, That's right. always an interesting challenge as to how do you evaluate a company for public shareholders. In this situation, when it's a merger, the data provided to the shareholders is almost like an insider. There's forward-looking statements, what the earnings are, they get a chance to really have a very deep due diligence. So the uh, from an institutional point of view, the purity of what they can have a bet on is much wider, much more detailed and forward-looking. And I think that is a very, very powerful 
uh, a combination for many of the shareholders who like to see whether or not they want to participate or not. Uh, look, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but since you brought this issue up of uh, forward-looking projections being part of a SPAC, which makes it somewhat idiosyncratic compared to a typical IPO process, is that an art or a science? I mean, how does a company, at least, you know, when you look backward, you can say, okay, these are audited statements, and this is the way my performance has been. But when you go for the forward-looking part, how much art, how much science come in? Well, I think it's a very good question. Look, you, there's no uh, clarity, and this is only best guess. But what it does is that it gives the potential investor a very good sense of what the company is thinking about its prospects. And to those numbers, it can have, uh, can challenge the management. Because if I tell, if you ask a question, look, I'm going to grow by X and Y percentage, it's a different question when you say, hey, you've written a projection of 20%, how do you justify 20? And that detailed conversation gives you the color, which is the insight when the investor can potentially make a judgment. And I use the word judgment because then it is something that they have to take a bet on where the information is obviously very dependent on what will happen in the market. And as you can see in the last two years, all projections were out of the window. because uh, uh, you know, idiosyncratic plus things happen in business, which you have to be obviously much more careful about. So a typical prospectus of a SPAC would be largely devoted toward the forward-looking aspect? No, a SPAC prospectus is just a cash show. It then defines what the potential management is seeking to do. When the actual merger document comes, it's a completely different thing. Uh, all the shareholders are written to, and they then decide uh, as to whether or not what the merger company is, what their ratio is, how do they value it, what the whole thought process is. Now, just uh, to add something to this here, typically what happens is in a merger situation, in addition to the SPAC, the uh, company often raises money in what they call a pipe. A pipe is a sort of a private, it's, a, it's somewhere in between a private equity type situation and a public situation where institutional investors have a real chance to dig in deep in looking at the company. So often what happens is when you agree to a merger, you go to institutions in a mini roadshow, uh, and they really do a deep dive in the company. And often they say, okay, on the following basis, I like, I will participate. And this often forms the basis of what the SPAC deal may form. And so in a way, for the SPAC investor, then now they have two situations. You've had five or 10 of the top institutions looking at it, pricing it, and they have a chance to either participate or not. And so there's again, in addition to data, a price, uh, uh, seeking mechanism, which in a way defines this deal uh, on a trade-by-trade -trade basis. Right. That's actually very interesting. Um, so you launch a SPAC, uh, you raise capital. The company now has to be identified. How much time does one have? Yes. It's historically a range uh, between 18 months and 24 months. I would say most of the market is in that range. What happens is when the investor puts the money, it is not for the company to use. We put that money with a trust. The trust then puts it on deposit. So the interest rate is very much a function on the interest rates that you can obtain on that cash for that time. So as you know, at the moment, rates are very low, so that amount is smaller, and it's obviously changed depending on that situation. So we normally, for example, have seen people put money in treasury bills, and so it's actually very safe. Okay, so I, I don't know how realistic this example that I'm about to uh, bring up is that I go out, create a SPAC, I receive $100 from investors. I find the target, 
I acquire that company, it costs only 50. So then what happens to the other 50? Good. Uh, often that's not the ratio. Uh, a very good rule of thumb is that if you raised 100, you don't target a company for 50. You target a company for almost four to 500. Mm. And this is a very, very important point. So uh, one of the reasons people have got very uh, uh, interested in SPACs and, ha and these investments have proved to be quite good investments is that three or four things happen for a perfect SPAC. One, you have a cash instrument and a public entity which allows a longer-term merge company to be a public company. Two, you have this potential of the pipe, as I just discussed, which is a pricing mechanism by institutions to look in. And third, and most importantly, that if you think about the actual numbers, the original company shareholders are still usually the largest shareholder going forward. So what is the comfort level? The comfort level is they owned 80 or 100% of the company. They've actually sold down 20 or 30 through this process, but they still own 50 to 60% of the company. So in a way, the deal uh, to be public is an important part for them in their journey as a company. And the bet for investors is you've had more information, you've had the largest shareholder still being the person who was the person who drove the business to date, and they have stayed on in the company as opposed to exited. Now, in many ways, if you look at that group, if they wanted to exit the company completely, SPAC may not be the right option. The better option is to do an M&A deal, sell their company. So SPAC is ideally for someone who's looking for an intermediary, intermediate situation where some part of your shareholding gets out, but you still keep a very large chunk. You have price discovery through the institutions. You raise some capital for future growth and you have a public listing. So this, in essence, is, I would say, the perfect trifecta of why a deal may potentially work. Okay, and that notion that you, know, you might end up spending much less than the $100 you had raised is somewhat impractical, for example. Uh, it is, it yes. is it, because normally what would happen is uh, SPACs rarely uh, uh, go to have businesses that are uh, smaller in size in equity valuation. Uh, so I have some understanding of how a private equity fund works, but would you be able to walk us through the life cycle of a SPAC? Yes. So uh, a life cycle of a SPAC is that you have the first, the marketing period, you list the SPAC, and uh, the sponsors, who are the ones doing it, uh, uh, have to put a lot of risk capital in it. Because to organize a SPAC, none of that money comes from the investors, because all, all the money of the investors is actually held in trust because if they decide not to participate, they get it back. So to set up the SPAC, all the pre-work, all the legal requirements, the legal filing, the underwriter fees, etc., is all paid by the sponsor group. So they're taking a lot of risk. If they are unable to consummate a transaction that is uh, accepted by the shareholders, they lose all that risk capital. So it's not that there isn't risk, there's quite a lot of risk. So I think that's the first part. So first step, you put this package together, you get the group of people, and uh, you then go to the market to raise the money. And that sh uh, the bunch of shareholders who give you the capital for it have to be convinced that they feel comfortable that that team is able to find a transaction and then execute it. So that's issue number one. So now you've raised the money. You now have a period of 18 to 24 months to consummate a deal. What then happens, you identify a deal, you have merger agreements, and then you go and uh, when you have an agreement as to what those terms would be, 
post that, you go and usually find a pipe. That takes anywhere from three to four weeks. You get good feedback whether the deal works or not. If that deal were to work, you then put that pipe together and you create a document which then goes to all the shareholders to approve the transaction of the pipe as well as whether uh, what the terms are for their merger. And there's a whole procedure because time is needed to have the deal approved by the SEC. It then comes back, it then goes to the shareholders. So that whole process, post-agreement, is a minimum of three months. And it's, very, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for the company, the bankers, because in essence you have to create a public company as a result of it. So, uh, so that's usually the process. So if you take a 24-month period, I would say three to four months are needed just for the actual execution of it. So uh, usually less than 12 months to find a deal, find an agreement, and then balance to execute. I don't know if that helps no, that's give very, you a little bit of a sense of... Very, very helpful. Uh, so basically, you know, the, the shareholder vote to acquisition close. And at that point, uh, the, the company that got merged just is a publicly traded company yes. and life just goes on. So what happens is, if in any merger with a public company, there's a share exchange. And so a ratio is decided. And as I said, the merger company is usually bigger than your company. So the SPAC got a small percentage of what will be, in essence, the new company. So if you start with, let's say, 10 million shares, and just to make it easy, the ratio is 3 is to 1 in favor of the larger company, you'll end up with 40 million shares. 10 million of them were SPAC'd and 30 to the new guys who merged the company. And this could be in the hands of the pipe holders, uh, or, or the current shareholders of the original company. Right. Now, the typical narrative of an original company would be, you know, you grow three, four, five years, you have a proven business model, you have raised um, some profile, there is some revenue, capital market is getting interested in you, and now you have to learn about the tough life of being a public listed company which requires quarterly reporting and so on. Is there a danger that by sort of shortening that phase through a SPAC vehicle, that somehow those sort of cultural adjustments for that company's uh, founders would be a bit more challenging? I think you bring out a very good point here. I, I do think that that is one of the risks because the public markets are not forgiving and to adjust to the rigor of a public markets reporting regime has to be followed. So it's really a, that's a very, very important point when you're seeking to who you want to potentially merge with are they ready to be for the public markets? And, uh, and I think we are still uh, quite young in the sort of SPAC age. And this question is going to be borne out uh, as people are looking at very interesting technology companies or biotech companies. Were they really ready for the markets? Uh, and I think that's, that's an important question to still be answered. Uh, Mary, I really appreciate that because I think we will all be following eagerly to see this, especially given the sort of the plethora of deals that are taking place. Um, Alok, walk us through the incentive structure of a SPAC. I think you've already pointed out very clearly that the risks that are in, uh, you know, involved and then the challenges, uh, but of course, you know, it is potentially very lucrative for the founder and the early investors. Uh, but what about, you know, the incentive for the retail investors and the, the late ones who are coming in to well, I think, you know, the, the way I kind of look at it is that the sponsor puts all the risk capital to do it. And for that, they get some free shares, which is a percentage of uh, the original SPAC that they raised, right? And as I said, if they're unable to execute, 
they lose uh, all those shares. From a retail shareholder point of view, there are many points of entry. They can get in at the point of the spacking. So for example, most SPAC shares are trading. They trade plus minus around the initial issue price. Some are going at a premium, but it's not a substantial premium. So that's a time they can enter because it's freely traded right now. They also can enter at a time when the merger just announced, which is around the time when the institutions are participating. They have another chance to do it. And then the third one is as they see the sponsor, uh, and I'll come back to that in a second, uh, which has been the real big change behind the SPAC market. The, it is a public, market, a public company going forward, so they can enter at any time. So to me, I think the way to think about it is that companies are coming to the market slightly earlier than they were before. One other important point I want to make is why has there been so much attention for SPAC now? Uh, there has always been a historic relationship between public markets and private markets. And from time to time, one's at a premium and one's at a discount. Uh, I think given the very strong markets we've seen globally, uh, especially in the US, in the tech, in the biotech, in the faster growth sectors, we're seeing quite a premium today of how public markets are viewing investment opportunities as opposed to the private. And this could be for many reasons, the scale, the size of the market versus opportunity. And, you know, the private equity business is quite fixed. It doesn't explode in any one particular year. So as these markets are varying in valuation, that gives interesting opportunities for companies that would have otherwise stayed private are now considering going public. And by the way, going public, like you asked, doesn't come without costs. There's a lot of work that a company has to do. And so this is where the trade-offs are. Is the valuation worth it? Does it give a currency? So one of the interesting things looked at companies who are looking to merge, why should they merge with a public entity? Obviously, potentially the valuation, it could be they have now a new currency if they want to expand uh, much harder in a private company to share equity with a wide staff. But if you're going to grow into a new area, you want to show, uh, have uh, ESOPs, public companies, so much easier. Uh, Alok, uh, you mentioned that when a SPAC is set up, that that is an entry point for retail investors and they can uh, trade at a premium. Uh, and why would they trade at a premium? Because of the reputation of the founders? It's a very, very good question. So uh, the start, if you look at SPACs, uh, whilst it's getting a lot of press recently, they've been around for a very, very long time. They were done by a whole different host of people, often used in the past by energy companies in exploration. This is a, and if you go back, it was, they were quite heavily used as shells in mining and in energy. That was sort of where they started. This in the 70s and 80s? I wouldn't say 70s, 80s, but a little bit later, the last okay. 20 years. All right. What's then happened is that over the last years, as these cash shells and rates have been down and the markets have been buoyant, the quality of the sponsors have dramatically changed. You've had a some very, very strong teams uh, who are able to be part of SPACs and many of them are fishing in a particular area. So the way I kind of look at it is that the, the more successful SPACs of the future are going to be highly organized teams which have strong sponsor groups which are focused in a particular area because they bring a certain skill set. Because at the end, what are you offering? You're offering partnership. And there must be a value to the merge company in, in addition just for the capital. And I think that often comes with people 
it's about synergy, it's about the active involvement in a particular sector, it's about credibility, etc. So what's happened is the explosion of SPACs and the acceptability of the market is because the quality of the SPAC sponsors keeps improving. Uh, and therefore, I think this is going to be a vehicle around uh, uh, much longer. It could be that as there's a lot of choice, the investors are going to be a lot more circumspect and choose carefully. But I do think that this vehicle will be quite an active uh, part of capital markets going forward. Uh, just to be clear, the term that I'm using, founder, and the term that you're using, sponsor, we really same thing. It, it's, a, it's a similar thing because uh, there's, a, uh, there's a definitions of all of that, but it's people who put it together in many ways are the sponsor okay. or the founder. Right. And what is the typical background of a sponsor or a founder? Yeah. So yeah, let's break that up as to what is the job of a SPAC. So there's usually three elements. You may have an industry-specific focus. So often you see SPACs uh, uh, in many ways, as I see the future of SPACs, how they're going to come in the future. You're going to have professionals as part of the leadership team who really have operating expertise and management expertise in that broad sector, right? Having run big companies. So they're able to be very good evaluators or partners for emerged entity. That could be so industry experience. Two, it's more of an M&A and an investment deal. You need investment expertise, right? Which has the ability to analyze companies, decide uh, what is the right ratio to make it worthwhile investment going forward, right? Third, capital markets expertise, because you may need to use a pipe. You may need to have other structuring, debt, etc. So to me, the future of the uh, uh, successful SPACs will have these three elements, uh, which is why it's not as straightforward, and they do bring value if packaged together with your advisors. Great. Now, so far, we have been you know, largely general, but I think some data uh, would be sort of useful if you could share with us. You know, can you give us a sense of you know, what is the size of a typical SPAC and what kind of a year was 2020 as far as SPACs yes. were concerned? So uh, just to give you a little sense, I think the early days, uh, most SPACs were you know, 100 to 200 odd million, uh, and they continue to be some smaller SPACs as well right now. But the typical average, uh, from what I gather, uh, to my understanding, is somewhere between 250 and 300 million on average. That is a typical uh, SPAC, and that's the median. There's some very large ones. And then there is uh, several small ones. Uh, to give you a, uh, a sense, uh, in, uh, just in numbers, to give you a little sense. So 2018, there were 37 SPACs. And uh, they raised about $10 billion in total. In 2019, that number was about 13 billion with about 50 SPACs. So yeah. in line. Uh, 2020 was an explosive year. And there was 231 SPACs. So four times the previous year with a volume of about $80 billion. So it's suddenly become mainstream. And what's also encouraging is for January, which is just literally started, you've had uh, 65 SPACs already and uh, approximately $20 billion. So, so it is a, a extremely, it's suddenly become a very large market and with, uh, uh, you know, extremely... Uh, uh, in, uh, big names involved in this particular area. Now, 
you have made some very persuasive arguments about the usefulness of a SPAC, both from an investor as well from a company perspective. But what about the temporal dimension that you just mentioned that in 2020 with this explosive growth and beginning of 2021? So if the Fed did not have interest rates at zero, would SPACs be this explosive? Well, I think, you know, you have to look at it in order for a SPAC to work. Clearly, capital markets have to be supportive. I think, you know, at the end, it's a fundraising and people have to feel comfortable. But I think more important than that, it really has an important capital markets function. And the capital markets function is how does it underlying help the companies to come to the market? And I think what we're seeing, as we discussed earlier, is companies are coming a little bit earlier to the market. And it's allowing investors to be matched who want to be involved in some of these companies that in the previous thing they may have seen much, much later in their time or even not seen because they would have been bought by somebody else. So you're seeing a bigger choice, uh, but with that comes the challenge of identifying the ones that are going to work versus not work. But I think that's the big uh, dynamic. Also, it's going to be an important competitor to the IPO market. So to give you an idea, in the year 2018-19, the SPACs kind of represented you know, 18 to 20% of the IPO market. And if you look at it last year, it's almost half the the IPO market, 49%. And this year, year to date, in January, it's 72% of the IPO market. So it has become the go-to place in many ways uh, for investors, institutional and retail, uh, uh, as a way to potentially uh, 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 get merged with a company for all the reasons I described. Is it also because that some SPACs have already demonstrated impressive returns and people are sort of impressed by it? So what's like the track record? Yeah, I think, I think it's very early to make a comment because as I said, the 2020 uh, variety of SPACs are in the process of despacking, And uh, the real test and the answer will be seen in two or three years. But the early uh, evidence is actually uh, very, very good. Uh, and the uh, after uh, aftermarket performance emerged uh, SPACs have been very, very good. Uh, so, uh, and now I can't tell you if it's selective, it's too short a time frame, uh, but clearly they have uh, uh, performed better than the market uh, over the course of the very short history. But I don't want to rely on this because the data is far too young. Right. Great new frontier. Uh, look, you mentioned earlier that historically speaking, the early uh, phase of SPACs were in the energy space. And these days, of course, there's a huge amount of interest in tech. Uh, which sectors are we seeing SPACs by and large? So uh, I, it'll be interesting. So why don't I spend two minutes on giving you a little sense of 2020, which were the actual deals done in the subsector? Because that will help you clarify. And this, by the way, may not be 2021, and I'll come back to that. So they were, to give you a little sense, of the companies, of the deals announced by sector, uh, there were several done in electrical vehicles, which is again sort of a tech. 2021 deals done there. Four in energy, right? Three or four in industrial. Consumers were about three. TMT technology, 27. And uh, finance and healthcare, 10 or 14, plus minus. So if you actually see between electric vehicles, TMT, and healthcare, they're almost more than half. And I don't think that's going to change dramatically. I think the one other big area that could have lots of transactions you may see this year is in biotech. Uh, I think that will be the extension of tech uh, 
uh, as we've seen, there's been a lot of activity uh, with the whole COVID-19 and how this sector has performed. Uh, but I think by and large, the demand for companies is largely on higher growth companies. And as we see growth more in these subsectors, it's natural that that will continue. And is this a primarily US-centric phenomenon? Uh, the, there are some SPACs that are international, but I would say more than 80 to 90% of the current SPACs we've seen have been in the US. Uh, and uh, can that change? Absolutely. But, you know, uh, again, depends on how the regulation changes for SPACs in various different countries. Right. So, for example, in China, there is no such... There's no SPAC. I mean, you know, most Asian countries have not... It's, it's, the, the regulations don't allow for some of these things to happen in the speed as the US. Right. I recently read about SPAC ETFs. Yes. So, it's a very new phenomenon. And this was... Uh, so, this here's a question that uh, I want to participate in SPACs. But I'm scared to participate in SPACs because how will I do the research to know which SPAC to bet on? So obviously a concept was created to have uh, SPAC ETFs uh, where you get a whole selection of the market. And if on average they do well, you will participate. So it is again very young. There are two or three of these from what I gather around. Uh, and they are still, uh, they've all been launched over the course of the last uh, uh, you know, few weeks and months. So again, very early days. Uh, uh, as is the question you asked earlier about despacking, how will the results be? And, and so I think it's one of the things we have to keep a close eye. But the positive is that you get diversified bet. And so from a retail investor point of view, uh, you save the problem. If you really do want to participate in this, you have a chance to buy a portfolio of them rather than bet on any one uh, where it may or may not work out based on the information provided to you. Right. So the world of ETFs keeps on becoming more and more diversified. Uh, and again, I think just like you said earlier, it's way too early to tell because there is no track record or anything yeah. for that matter. Um, so I think that, you know, we'll have to come back a couple of years from now and discuss this even in greater detail. Uh, look, um, it's been very insightful and sort of informative. I want to end by asking you sort of a broad, you know, dimensional question, which is the social value of SPACs. Of course, you know, this is a part of capitalistic activity, we won profit maximization, but just from looking at the various, you know, actors involved in the whole SPAC process, at the end of the day, is this phenomenon adding value to society? So, uh, like you correctly said, uh, you know, first and foremost, I want to point out, it is a capital markets activity. So, it is a uh, way that companies can probably get capital and go use the public markets earlier than when they would have normally. So, it's a new vehicle, it's a way to get capital faster. So what is the value of that? I think there's really, you know, two. One for obviously these companies, better for entrepreneurs in the future. They have a chance to have funds from another source if they are successful, uh, which uh, or release, uh, get private equity or VC to be more active because they have exits through this mechanism. Uh, the second one is participation. Uh, uh, like we discussed earlier, we're not sure whether uh, the retail will end up making money or not. But many of these opportunities were never available for retail investors. And so for if you do the right work and you spend the, the op at least the opportunity is there for individuals to participate there. So there's a little bit more democratization of, uh, 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 of that from a social point of view. I think that's a very nice note to end on. Alok O'Brien, thank you so much for your insights. Excellent.
Soon after I recorded this conversation with Alok, I read something fascinating. Turns out there is an Asian angle to this backstory after all. You see, some funds and financiers are now turning their attention from the US to Asia. Not only are Asian markets exciting, SPACs have raised so much money in the past year or so that they do need to go beyond the US to find some targets. After all, as Alok pointed out in our conversation, those who put money in SPACs expect a target company to be merged with the SPAC, known as de-SPACing, within 24 months. Hence, 2021 may well be the year when Asian companies and SPACs are uttered in the same sentence together. Thanks so much to Alok for those insights. Thanks to our listeners too. Kopi Time was produced by Martin Taki. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 43 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day. Thank you.